Welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 40-day competitive podcast giving you tips and strategies you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and with me as always, I have our good co-host, Shaylin Allen. I am the Hammer. And filling in for our evil podcast host, and maybe a little evil himself since he does play orcs, is our good friend, Justin Witten. What up? Justin... This is your first chance to be on a podcast, isn't it? It is. And I'm slightly nervous. Well, don't be too nervous about it. I mean, honestly, what is the worst thing you could do? You can't, like, set the internet on fire with your podcasting, right? No, but every time I play at a hobby club, I get asked about the Jim Vessel game. (laughs) (laughs) As you well deserve, I think. Fair, that's fair. You should have known that would stick with you forever. A lot longer than I wanted it to, though. Oh, yeah, well, welcome to internet infamy. Yeah. Well, welcome to being a name in the community now, because I've had that since the get-go. Yeah, it's it's definitely a thing. <laughs> That's actually kind of uh, interesting, as that matchup brought up something that I have been thinking about for a little bit, ever since 8th edition dropped, and we kind of changed the way deployment happens here. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is terrain and deployment zones so i want to throw this question out the two of you because it's something i've thought about for a while should terrain setup be equal between the deployment zones because one of the things a lot of people complain about now is when you make that roll off for who gets to choose deployment sides you actually want to lose that roll off as it stands because you if you lose the roll off you get to start placing units first or In the case of the new ITC-style deployments, you place all your units first. So that feels like a disadvantage to win the roll, which it's not supposed to be. Getting to pick your deployment zone is supposed to be an advantage. And in other games, it sometimes is, because they'll have intentionally imbalanced terrain so that choosing your deployment zone is an actual advantage. But that hasn't been the way 40k has done it for a long time. People try to balance deployment zones. Is that something we should be looking to changing? What do you guys think? Shelly, do you want to take this one first? So part of it is, from a fairness standpoint, I've been terrain screwed, and that is a dumbass reason to lose a game, in my opinion. That would just make me salty. It's like, oh, I lost the first roll-off. Great. Sure. I'm I'm not saying that it there should be, you know, all terrain in one deployment zone. No, but you, but you like, are implying that you can lose a game because of that roll-off, and I would think that would suck. I don't think that's what I'm trying to imply. <laughs> uh, the idea would be that there should be an advantage to getting to choose your deployment zone. Not necessarily a game-winning advantage, but some kind of advantage. It shouldn't be a disadvantage to win that roll. I, I would actually agree with Sean on this one. I actually played a game recently where it was Mission 2, I, I won the roll, and I got to choose my deployment zone on... One quarter of the board, there was basically just a, a lot of open area terrain, and my quarter of the board had the only line of sight hill, essentially, <laughs> that blocked models, and he had a ton of snipers. And because of that, I was able to hide all my key characters behind that building, well, hill, and I was not able to be shot in round one, because then they were able to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... To be clear, I don't think we should have, you know, one deployment zone with nothing and one deployment zone with all the blocking terrain in it. Mm -hmm. You're right. We should have just roads on all boards. Just roads. Yes, clearly. 
<laughs> As a Tau player, I 100% believe in this. Tau, Guard. Mm -hmm. We're all playing on the highway now. Yep, yep. But no, like, I think there should be some level of disparity between them such that there is an advantage getting to choose your deployment zone. Yes, my concern is going to be there's a very fine line between advantage and crippling advantage when terrain in Aethid has been an observation, at least for my army. So that really needs to be taken care of with care if you're going to do it. And if you're not going to be able to do that, don't. Right. If it's the difference between two pieces of blocking terrain and four pieces, I might feel that's appropriate. But the difference between two and zero, not so much. Yeah. And terrain boards aren't super balanced across tables anyways, I've observed. Not across tables, but people tend to make a single table symmetrical, in my experience. Relatively speaking, it depends on if they have odd number pieces of certain types of terrain. That's literally creates that imbalance well, that you're talking yeah. about. Depending on what those pieces are and whatnot as well. But I find that tournament organizers and people who set up tables do tend to try and make terrain symmetrical as much as they can. Mm -hmm. It provides the opportunity of equalness when someone deploys first. Sure. And for the missions that you do go back and forth on for deploying, it does make that more even. Yes. Um, and, and that's part of the problem is that we're right now we're kind of straddling the difference between these two. Exactly. We, we have this, like, well, we alternate deployment, but also sometimes we have this all-or-nothing deployment. Yep. And so it's like, well, okay, those those are very different from each other. No, I think I have the solution to this. Mm -hmm. Instead of running, like, 20 tables, you run 40 tables, and you just do all of one side missions, 1, 3, and 5, and the other side, 2, 4, 6. <laughs> and you just rotate between them per mission. Of course, just make twice as many tables. Why didn't we think of that? I know, I, I'm a genius over here. I got I got ideas just coming out of me. This is why we have you on the podcast, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're terrible people. From there to our, our main subject for the episode, I think is a, a nice transition, where we will also be talking about asymmetrical gaming, uh, but this time in a little bit larger context, as we're talking about attacker and defender when it comes to missions. Something Sean has referenced a bajillion times already, if you've been listening. Yes, but a subject we've never really explored a lot and talked about what all that means for the players. So I think, like Tempo, kind of worthy of an episode, even though we've referenced it a number of times anyways. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who haven't listened to those other episodes or who may not remember those individual bits for them, the first thing we should do is break down what we mean when we talk about attacker and defender. I'm also going to give uh, due credit to my history with Magic the Gathering, as this concept is is born out of a lot of that, specifically uh, an article way, way back in the day by Mike Flores called Who is the Beatdown, which had a very similar concept in that game. So, attacker versus defender is basically a matter of which player needs to be more proactive and which player is going to, generally speaking, be more reactive. Another way to think about it is which player is the bigger advantage in the, the current game state. Notably, current game state is relevant because these roles do flip-flop throughout the game. Absolutely. It's probably something that most players have encountered on at least kind of an intuitional level. 
just having like played the game you do kind of get like oh i'm doing good right now so i want to keep things the way they are as opposed to like ooh, i'm in real trouble i gotta try for something here so most players at least kind of like intuitively get that but i wanted to kind of bring this into a more explicit because that's sort of what we do here is like we we take these ideas that people may have at least on some level and try to spell them out in a way that you can understand and delineate to someone else so justin what is your intrinsic sense of attacker and defender what do you think those roles are all about well as a player who plays a army who i perceive to be an attacking army the attacker, in my opinion, is someone who takes board control, takes action, advances on your opponent, and forces them to react to you. On the defending side, you have someone who wants to not give up board control, but have a box or a certain amount of area in which they want to have complete control over and kind of reach out across the board from there or have it a mobile area to kind of be a base and have kind of a small area of which to defend. I think that's a good starting place, but the concept, I think, actually extends well beyond that. One thing to think about is the attacker and defender roles exist in all games between players. So what happens if you get two shooting armies against each other? Well, that's just a lot of dice rolling right there. <laughs> <laughs> right, but you still have an attacker and defender in that situation. You do. I'd say part of it comes down to it depends on who goes first in, in that game to where you see who has more board positioning, who has line of sight, and what type of shooting armies are they. Are they your Necron shooting armies, which have a 24-inch hard cap typically with only a couple guns that reach out? Or are they the Tau army, which has a lot of long-range shooting? Yeah, It's going to be a kind of a juggle between those of who actually has an advantage on when it comes time to the board and what mission, and everything else. Essentially, there's a lot of variables. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's 40 in a nutshell. It's all about variables. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. The way I look at attacker and defender is... The defender is like, what you gonna do? Because in the present game state, if nothing changes, the defender will win. Yeah, absolutely. The attacker has to do something, has to so sort of seize the initiative, so to speak, mm -hmm. and take back whatever's caused the game state to be out of their favor. So, yes. for example, a Tau army with a bajillion Grey Knights sitting in front of it is actually in the attacker position, even though they are defender by Justin's definition. Yeah, I think it, it's important not to confuse defender with shooting army here. Mm -hmm. I was just making a broad example about that. Sure. And we're going to go into some examples here so people can get a little bit better feel for this in a minute. But I wanted to kind of like spell out the basic idea before we, we get into some of the, 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 the specifics like that. But the important thing to remember is that the defender is the player who has the impetus. They are the ones who, all other things being equal, if you just sort of rolled the game out like automatons, would otherwise win. There could be a number of reasons for that. One that both Shaylin and Justin have already touched on is firepower. Mm-hmm. The player with superior firepower is typically Defender because they can just kind of sit there and shoot guns at you and you die. Or assault you or psychic you. It doesn't actually matter what kind of firepower it is, only that they have superior damaging capabilities. Because if you get rid of all the enemy's models, you win. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's a pretty easy way to look at that. 
you also can consider, uh, Justin mentioned, board position. Board position and scoring can also be its own way of having that kind of default win state. We talked about in the Knights versus, say, Hordes matchup. Yes. The the concept of, well, I'm just going to set 30 Orc boys on, like, 60 Orc boys on objectives. What you going to do about it? Absolutely. All other things being equal, the Orcs will win that matchup because they will just score more points and the Knight player will lose. That said, you also do have to consider picking secondaries in that as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's not just about, if you're talking ITC, the primary mission, but also how many points you're going to get out of your secondaries. If you're playing an Eldar flyer list and you're only expecting to see, like, five or six points out of your secondaries, then you are kind of playing down six points the whole game, which may very well be putting you into the attacker role. Yep. The key point here is the inevitability of the matchup. It's... What is going to happen at the end of the game if neither of us do anything exceptional? And what you consider exceptional there can vary a little bit. You know, really, like, most players have a pretty good feel for what is likely to happen over the course of a game. Taking those basic likelihoods, you can look at who's going to win. You know, if we, if we both kill and hold and do all our usual stuff, who wins at the end of the game? Yeah. Yeah. So the attacker is the person who is down a little bit, a little bit behind. I I would disagree with that. I will agree that the attacker sometimes is forced into that position based on how the board's playing out. But typically an aggressive player, look at Gene Steeler Cole, for example, they're coming at you. It, It doesn't matter that they're down or they're up. One way or another, they are coming at you. Yes. Some armies do tend to get forced into that role, but they aren't always in that role. Let's actually, like, look at some examples that I think can do some good to illustrate things here. So, like, I'm going to throw these out here, and I want to hear what both of you think are attacker, defender, and why. So, let's take, like, an Orc Horde versus a Tau Broadside army. <laughs> I This one should be a pretty easy softball pitch. <laughs> Hmm, I'm pretty sure the broadsides are attacking here. Yeah, clearly. Pretty sure. Yeah, obviously the Orc Horde is the attacker. Why? If both armies just kind of sit there and do their thing, the broadsides are going to absolutely destroy them. Yes. Not because they are the shooting army, but because the Orcs just can't move fast enough to avoid being cleaned off the table. Talking from experience on this one, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the broadsides have too much firepower, they will destroy the orcs. And yes, the orcs will probably be ahead in points on the early turns of the game. That still doesn't put them in the defender role, because by the end of the game, they are expecting to lose all of their models, which means that the Tau player is going to end up ahead on points. Yeah. But if they are playing on super heavy urban table sure that changes the dynamic there and maybe the orcs are defending because the tau player didn't bring enough smart missile systems to deal with the problem very possible yeah we're not going to get too much into the details here but you know as shaylin points out realize that there are lots of details that can affect things be they the terrain the mission the deployment type any number of other things we're speaking in very broad generalities here yeah yeah no i just thought i'd throw out the counter example of 
this is the example of the flip-flop of that very same matchup. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that's very important to understand is that these can change very easily. So, like, example number two, Imperial Knights versus Thousand Suns Psychers. I would say the Imperial Knights are the attackers in this case. Really? What's your thought? I'm imagining your typical three knights of some sort, most of them being shooting. Three knights plus various garbage versus... Basically. Yeah. And I would actually say that the knights are on the defensive. Why would you think that? So I'm thinking typically there's going to be two objectives that they can pretty easily get. So they're going to plant their knights so that they have control of those two objectives. Mm-hmm. They're going to sit there, they're going to hold them, and they're most likely going to get kill more just from their shooting. You know, that does depend on terrain and how deployment goes. Mm-hmm. But the Thousand Suns players, imagine that they have Xanagors, Demon Princes... Uh, I'm going to guess there's also a mix of regular demons and other stuff in there. Sure. They're going to be taking more board control and pushing on the knights to try to take those objectives and try to get more kills so that they can get more and then kill more. They're going to be the ones having to force their movement. Whereas the knights, they'll use their guardsmen or their sisters or their loyal 17 just to kind of make a wall and let the knights do the work. Mm -hmm. That's... I, I think I see that. Chaylin, uh, did you... So the reason I think the Thousand Suns player is the defender is because what the Thousand Suns player is probably running is hordes to protect their psychers. Those psychers are going to blow those knights off the table if they don't do something about those characters very fast. That is true. Yes, and that's why I would put the Thousand Suns of the psychers. And, and this is where it's important to understand that you know, board position and who is advancing is not necessarily going to define attack or defender. It's the inevitability of the game. Mm-hmm. Where is the game going to go if no one does anything? Those Thousand Sun Psychers will shred the knights. Oh, they will. They simply don't have the bodies to protect them from the psychic spells for very long. And the knights are going to struggle to kill whatever big stupid blocking units the Thousand Suns player has put in front of all their things, be they plague bearers, Zangors, cultists, what have you. Knights don't do typically well against hordes, and if they close in to try and tear them apart with melee, then that only makes them even more vulnerable to all those psychic spells. So I would very much put the inevitability with the Thousand Suns player. Mm-hmm. they are the one who is going to win the game if everything goes according to plan. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, think about it. C- can the knights endure six turns of casting from the Thousand Suns? Oh, no, but obviously the knights are going to be moving forward and then charging. What I'm imagining is that they probably get charged turn two by the by the Zangors, Plague Bears, whatever, right there. And if positioning or if enough shoes been put into them, then they can fall back over them and then start charging characters behind them. Granted, they probably have a demon prince with the big axe of die to whatever Titan Slayer is there. Yes. And that's the thing, is they can't easily go in without eliminating that demon prince. Mm-hmm. Because if they go in, they die to the demon prince. And they can't hang back, because if they just sit there, then the spells are going to kill them. Mm-hmm. That's why I think they have inevitability. Now, that said... Build matters, terrain matters, mission matters. There's lots of other things that can play into this. But all other things being equal, I think that Thousand Suns typically have the advantage over the Imperial Knights. Now, 
That's not to say the Imperial Knights can't do anything. They have shenanigans at their disposal that may allow them to beat this. Yes. But it's, this is where we talk about the, you know, unless you change the default state of the game, and that's what's critical here. Mm -hmm. The default state of the game is Knights Die to Spells. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's look to uh, another example that I think Justin will actually be relatively familiar with. <laughs> also, I love your naming on this one, too. Yes. Uh, the uh, An Orc Horde list versus the Gene Steeler Cult Muscle Beach list, which is to say the one with 20 aberrants in it. Yep. Shailene, I'd like to... I don't know enough about GSE to answer this question. Okay. <laughs> Justin, what's your what's your take on this? From experience... You have to play a KG game with your grots and throw them out about six inches away in front of your boys. Okay, why? Granted, I run an orc army that's 120 boys. So what, what is it that makes the orcs the defensive? Because you talked about, like, you know, taking ground and position and whatnot before. What makes the orcs the defense here? So between hand flamers, aberrants, and acolytes with rock saws, your boys will get mulched in combat and shooting if the Gene Circle is allowed to have their way with them. That's just going to happen. Mm -hmm. They're one of the rare armies that can actually just come down and wipe out most of your boys. Yep. With that, you need to play actually a pretty cagey game. You need to... Mm -hmm. Justin, you're talking about playing defensively, which sounds more like you are being in the attacker role where you have to change the status of the game. No, so it's an odd position to be in. How I typically play the game is... I focus down with whatever shooting I have, the things that can kill my screen. Be that they are Lehman Russes, Mortars, whatever. I try to kill those things if I can. Mm -hmm. And I try to keep my grots in front. If I have to, I'll throw a single boy unit lining the rest of my other three boy, unit, boy units so that only I will only lose one at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wait until the turn in which they commit and I countercharge and shoot with everything I have. Yes. So it's a waiting game to see how long you can outlast them. Mm -hmm. And then once that has happened, you can take your momentum and push forward with everything you have. And that comes in with jumps on turn four or turn three, casting all your war paths and just shooting with all your boys. Right. And this is why I would tend to agree with Justin. The default state of this game mm -hmm. is that the Gene Stewart cult is not allowed to assault anything important because you have screens out front. Gotcha. We're presuming you, you're you playing well enough to screen your units because you know what Gene Steeler Cult do. Mm -hmm. Presuming you do that, the Gene Steeler Cult player is only allowed to kill your screens. They don't get to kill anything else. It is now on them to somehow get past your screens in order to get to the meat of your list. Which is to say, they need to change the default state of the game. Mm -hmm. Gene Steeler Cult is almost always the attacker because by the very nature of their list they start pretty much everything off the board and they usually start having to come in and change the way the board is set up this is where justin i think is very correct in saying that board position can be very important mm -hmm. the, almost all armies take board position from gene steer colts initially and then Gene Steeler Colts need to try and take it back from them. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So in this case, I would I would say that the the Orc Horde is the defensive list because they need to be prepared to react to what the Gene Steeler Colt does 
because they start out in a position of advantage. So, final example, uh, and I think this one is somewhat illustrative because we talked about a little bit about this idea earlier, Tau broadsides against Imperial Guard artillery. Mm. <laughs> Do either of you want to you wanna take this one? I have a quick question about it. Yes? Are we imagining max amount of Basilis with max amount of Wyverns versus only broadsides? I really just want to imagine this. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are other units in both armies, presumably. We're not. This is not an Imperial Guard triple spearhead list. Uh, but but it would be so beautiful. It would be hilarious. <laughs> but you know, presume that there are bodies in front of them and drones accompanying and all of the usual stuff. We're sketching the broad outlines of a list here. Gotcha, gotcha. Hmm. hmm. I would have to say that the artillery would have to be the offensive. Why do you think they're the offense? So, you know, they, they do have longer range than the Tau with broadsides. Mm-hmm. You have essentially an infinite range gun versus a 36 and 30-inch gun. Yep. But the Tau can still shoot with half of those guns without line of sight. Sure. Uh, depending on what type of board it is, you're still going to have line of sight of the guardsmen. And those screens aren't going to last long, depending on how many they have. Mm-hmm. And also granted whatever else is in the list. But it's up to the guard to try to push back and then get in combat with those things or just time down, or just to clear off the drones so that the artillery can actually kill them. If the tower just let, kind of just sit there and shoot without the guardsmen advancing up to clear off the drones, whatever artillery is going to be fired into them, it's just going to put it right on a drone, and then it's just, cool, you kill the drone. Maybe. Yeah. So it's really up to the guardsmen, or the guard player, to force the hand of the tower player, in my opinion. Shailen, what do you think? I'm kind of with Justin here, is that the the tower broadsides... uh... Basilisks are the things that they're afraid of, but if they have enough drone bodies, they just don't care. They're immune until the drone bodies are done. So they basically have two to three turns of just, well, we're going to pound you before you can pound us. Mm -hmm. And that's just going to be a problem for the guard player if the guard player can't find a different way to neutralize the broadsides or the rest of the Tau list because... Sure. Little Tau dudes can run forward and just get themselves like, they can assault and touch things too. It's true. So, I think I'm actually going to sit on the other side of both of you on this one. (laughs) I have played this matchup before as the Tau player. I would definitely say that the guard is the defense here. So, here's my reasoning. Wyverns and Lasguns kill drones. Basilisks kill broadsides. Gotcha. Yes. And they all do that from a longer range than the Tau guns do. Mm -hmm. If both players just sit in their deployment zone... The Tau lives. It doesn't matter that they have drones to put their wounds onto. Their guns don't even reach the the Basilisks until they have moved forward. That is true. Because the Basilisks can just sit in the very, very back corner of everything and pound away. And so can Wyverns. Both of those outrange the Tau significantly. I I can see your argument there. The Tau do need to move forward and reposition... And they need to do something to expose those units to fire. Because they also can fire without line of sight. And yes, the smart missiles can fire without line of sight. But that's uh, half the broadside's firepower. Exactly. And really against vehicles, even less than half. Because uh, yeah, damage 1, strength 5 is not going to kill vehicles very quickly. Now as a question, are they running any rail cannons on the broadsides? I, they, they're broadsides, so no. <laughs> uh, I just wonder if they threw in some... Random things in the Knicks. And again, 
other things could change this. Um, if they have the right supporting elements, then you might be able to tilt this the other way. Certainly some Cold Star Commanders that are going to able to be able to just like zip in there and start touching things can really change the way this matchup plays out. Mm -hmm. So again, it's dependent on build. It's dependent on terrain. If there's no line of sight blocking terrain on this table, yep. suddenly it becomes a very different game because the Tau get to use all of their guns the whole game. Mm -hmm. And zero map from earlier. <laughs> yes. So again, there are a lot of other factors that can change the way this matchup plays out. But I would say that all other things being equal, the IG is the defense. Um, they don't need to assault the Tau. They just need to keep shooting all their guns every turn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And unless the Tau player can stop them from doing that, the IG will eventually win. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about you know, these different armies and said, you know, oh, X is the, the attacker and Y is the defender and whatnot. But as we mentioned earlier a little bit, very important to remember, this can change over the course of a game. Yes. Yes. For example, a in the Tau Broadsides versus IG thing, you blow up one of the tanks and all the tanks are cradled together and suddenly they're taking mortal wounds from the explosion and yes. they're all degraded and that would be a huge swing in that game. Absolutely. Actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. We keep throwing in actuallys. <laughs> Another good example, actually going back to the Orc Horde versus the Muscle Beach, mm -hmm. or the Gene Stiller Cult. Yep. In that game, the Orcs are playing defensive for the first three turns. Yes. And then after, come turn four, it switches. Orcs need to go on their aggressive side and push as hard as they can. Right, because at that point, it is likely that the Gene Stiller Cult has taken away the board control that the Orc player starts with. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, I'm kind of sad that we didn't give an example of you know, Space Marines versus Necrons. We're talking about a bad army versus an okay-ish army, Justin. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, you know, all armies need to be in the light. All armies are there. I bring in Grey Knights and that's the balance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that does offset everything by a little. Yes, yes. Yes, it's, it's very important to remember that this can shift with a bad dice roll, like that one explosion mm -hmm. that Shaylin mentioned, with the course of the game, as players position their units and sort of take over different sections of the board. Someone makes a mistake and the other person jumps on it. Absolutely. Yep, yep. So you need to be reassessing this the whole time you're playing, and not necessarily every single second of every single matchup, but be thinking about each turn you look at and you say, what are my goals? What do I need to do? Are things going good? Are things going bad? Do I need to start taking risks? Or can I kind of just, like, keep coasting it where I am? Mm -hmm. Or do I need to block off them from catching it away from me? Yes. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk a lot about that in the second half of the episode. But before we do so, I think it is time for a quick resupply mission. And we will catch you all in the second half. <laughs> Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! Let me tell you about this amazing tournament I went to last year. It was the Boardroom Brawl GT in Grand Forks, Canada. This year, they're doing it again, August 3rd and 4th. It includes a 
post-game barbecue on Saturday, which is the best social thing ever. Also, fantastic terrain that is just super cool and kooky and engaging, and some of the most finest players you will ever meet. Totally worth the trip to Canada for. Please go, guys. They're Northwest Area Gamers. If you're looking for a major ITC event happening in the later end of the year here, think about Stumptown Stomp. It's a charity event, and at only $55, the majority of which does go to charity, you can get in for two full days of gaming on November 16th and 17th, and it comes with a potluck lunch on the first day of the event. There are a variety of prizes, raffled as well as awarded, for both painting, sportsmanship, overall, and generalship. So come on down to Guardian Games and give it a spin. refreshed and rejuvenated and re-enlisted that's that's a verb too right hey man you, you never get out of the guard it's true once you're in the guard you're in for life i was never in the guard to start one mm-hmm. i don't imagine that the imperium has a particularly generous drawdown program that's that's not really how they do your retirement is just giving your life for the emperor that's just really the retirement plan Pretty much. If you're high-ranking, it can be Kush-ish. Sure. Until they, you know, send your battleship in to die somewhere, because that's how the Imperium do. <laughs> or exterminate us your planet. Yeah, there's a reason why you don't see many guardsmen above the age of, like, 25. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're talking about attacker and defender and kind of the jobs both of them have to be doing. And I think a good place to start is with the attacker here. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier that the attacker's job is basically to change the game state. But what does that actually mean for them in terms of like what they have to do? We have an episode where we were talking about playing from behind. All yep. of those tricks, immediately applicable. Absolutely. So I'd advise going and having a re-listen there. But a thing attackers do is... The very first thing they need to do is being like, okay, I'm on the back foot a little bit here. What do I have to adjust? They need to set goals to get back into that position where they're on the up. Yes, because that, that's your first step is what do I need to change? Like, What is it about this game state that puts me in the attacker role, that puts me at a disadvantage? That's like uh, reserve-based armies like Gene Staler Cult or Grey Knights are basically saying that it's like, well, we don't have as much stuff on the board. We're waiting, we're waiting. Now it's time for the insertion. We're going to steal it back. Mm -hmm. Right. And in that Gene Staler Cult example we used earlier, you can look at that and say, okay, what do I need to change about the current game state? And I would say in that matchup, the, the obvious answer is their screens. I mm -hmm. need to get rid of their screens. I think Justin would probably agree with that since we talked about that quite a bit. No, no, don't don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, leave their screens intact. I'm sure that is your advice to Gene Steer Cult players against the works. Yeah, no, seriously, just don't even fire. Oh yeah, that super secret strategy. Just don't even charge. Don't even try to charge. Oh yeah. You can't fail a charge if you don't try for a charge. <laughs> oh yeah. So why go for it? You know, just sit back. Mm-hmm. 
just use your your auto pistols. That'll win you the game. So, so you mean to put the beach in the beach bums? <laughs> yeah. If you think about it, what is preventing the Gene Steeler cult player from winning there is the orc player screens. Mm-hmm. With those screens up, they can't get to the good stuff in the list. So what you need to change is you need to remove those screens. Mm-hmm. In other game states, that may be very different. For example, in the, the Tau versus IG matchup, what's preventing the Tau player from winning is the range. Mm-hmm. The, the Imperial Guard player gets to shoot at them, and they don't get to shoot back. If you can change that range, you change what's happening in the matchup. Mm-hmm. Yes. Position, often very important in that. But not necessarily the only thing. It may be the existence of particular units in, say, a different matchup like knights versus tau the knights might look at the tau list and say as long as your drones are alive i can't hurt you yes mm-hmm. so i have to get rid of drones really quick i just kind of want to interject here with a quick little thing yeah i think it also really depends on kind of the list building side of what you're bringing to the table initially with the idea of what you want to accomplish just come across any list absolutely because if you're bringing like you know pure harlequins or harlequins because you like clowns for some reason i can't imagine why you would but i don't know why either but (laughs) (laughs) uh for context he's the harlequin player i did the sweep on and totally totaled (laughs) but when you come to the table you have a certain idea of what you want to do or how you're going to play the game against anybody not just you know Mm -hmm. a gun line or your gsc player you need to have a certain so if you come to the table and you're Necrons, granted it's probably one of like two Necron variants, in, but you have an idea of what you need to do. Either you are the aggressive player every game because you have to be, or you're choosing to be the defensive player, which, which would we will get into later. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, you have that general game plan and you need to look at, does this game plan work against this army? Yes. And if it doesn't work, how can I change things so that it will work? Yes. Or how can I come up with an entirely new plan that is viable here? Yes. This is kind of in the, when you're assessing your opponent's list phase, it's like, okay, what's their game plan? What's my game plan? Who's the attacker or defender? We mentioned that specifically in this episode. If you yep. are the attacker, you need to adjust your game plan in some way. Usually, right. as Josh would say, taking away their advantage from them mm-hmm. or just trying something a little different. Yes. This is where the attacker's job can be kind of risky because we already know that the default of the game is you're going to lose if you're the attacker. Mm-hmm. So you need to take some amount of risk in order to change that default state. Now, this does not necessarily have to be a big risk or a wild and unconcerned risk, but you need to do something that is outside your normal wheelhouse because, again, the default is you're going to lose. So you gotta try for something. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of different ways, I think, generally speaking, you can go about this. If you are realizing, like, oh, if this is how things are going, I'm gonna lose, you can either try and go big, which would be sort of like an Alpha Strike plan, is like, okay, if we just roll this out most of the time, he's gonna win. So I'm gonna try for a better roll than normal, and if it works, I win, and if it doesn't, I lose. And since I was going to lose anyways, there's no risk to this plan. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, a very different way of going about this can be score chipping. Mm -hmm. uh, Which is to say, like, okay, I'm going to take second. 
and I'm going to kill one more than him, and I'm going to hold one more than him every single turn of the game. And I may lose most of my army doing it, but if I am up four turns, maybe I just win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I win despite being tabled. That is possible in ITC. Absolutely. You'll see this with something like uh, Brandon Grant versus Alex Harrison. Yeah. Uh, in the, the LVO finals this year. I think you can make a solid argument that Brandon was losing a larger percentage of his army every single turn of the game, but he was going up in score every single turn of the game. He traded models for points. Exactly. And that was a choice he, he cautiously chose to make. He said that, like, I know that if I just sit here and let him shoot me, I lose. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is put my models in vulnerable positions, but in positions that get me more points than I otherwise would have if I had tried to hide them. Yes. And this is kind of an important thing to realize, is that even though Alex was on the offensive there, he was the one blowing up all the models and doing all the damage, in the early turns of the game, he was the defender. Because he was the player who was all other things equal, going to win that game. Mm -hmm. But Brandon turned it around on him. I think you can make a very solid argument that by turn two, or maybe turn three at the latest, Brandon was the defending player, because he had gotten to the point where he just said, if I just sit on objectives, I will win the game. Yes. Also, one thing to sort of, like, throw in here is don't neglect the basics of the game just because you are the attacker. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you still need to be holding one and killing one and getting your secondaries. You can make a big risky gamble play or whatever your other strategy you've decided to come across, but don't overturn everything just because you realize that you, you need to change the game state because you still need to be fulfilling all the sort of basic requirements of playing your list. It's really tempting to go for that big play, like the big hoorah I killed that big knight with this power fist, whatever. But it looks cool, but don't do it. Mm -hmm. Yes, if you burn your whole army making sure that that one power fist gets in and kills the knight, and then you're like, oh wait, I don't have an army, but he still does. Yup. Minus a knight. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. You know what? Cool points, you get them all the way, but... It's true. Cool points do not count at the end of a tournament. No. True. I've definitely seen this when players sort of like, as a Tau, for example, I'll have my unit of broadsides and someone is gets like, oh, okay, if, I, if the broadsides get to shoot every turn, I'm going to lose. And that's the correct line of thought is like, obviously, you can't let them be active the whole game. Yes. And they'll say, okay, so I need to assault them. Again, probably not wrong. You need to get something into combat so they don't get to shoot. Yes. And then they'll throw their entire army's resources into like, okay, and then this will charge, and this will charge, and this will charge, and this will charge. Yep. And you'll die to tell Overwatch, because you do. Yep. They throw a whole chunk of their army away, and then they do get into combat, but they gave me like three or four rounds of Overwatch fire to do it. And it can just destroy armies on the way in sometimes. Exactly. Know that, like, you still have to play your normal game, and you can't just afford to throw everything away changing the game state. You do need to change the game state, but you need to do so in a calculated fashion. Yes. Like the Grey Knight Purifier list going into the Tau Gun line. Well, we kill everything but the broadsides. What now, broadsides? Sure. And depending on 
what the game state looks like. The answer may be we shoot like normal and kill everything, or it may be some other variation. But it is that question you're posing when you when you look at them and say like, okay, like how do you deal with this? Yeah. Typically, the attacker is the one who is being forced to deal with things. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who has to say, like, how do I answer that? Because the defender is the one posing the question to them. Yes. And this is the easiest way to tell. Are you asking the question or are you being asked the question? That's where you know where you are. That is often a very good indicator. Speaking of, let's go ahead and talk about the defender's kind of role in the game a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. The defender is the one with, as we talked about earlier, inevitability. That if if all other things are the same, they win the game. That means the defender's number one goal in the game is keep things the way they are. Yeah. Yes. And that may mean keeping positioning the way it is. Um, if the enemy is advancing towards you, you need to back away from them because you want to stay at the range you were at last turn. Mm-hmm. or it may be keeping balance of forces the way it is. Um, the Tau player wants to change who gets to apply their firepower. The IG player wants to keep the firepower the way it is, because they like the way the firepower is. Yes. It can be other factors, like the amount of units on the table, or who controls what sections of the board, or other things like that. But whatever it is that is causing the defensive player to win... They want things to stay that way because they're winning. Yeah. So first is identify what's causing you to be in this position again, because that is the thing you're trying to conserve. Right. Know that protecting that is in some ways much easier because you don't have to exactly do anything. I mean, obviously you still have to do things, but Mm -hmm. you know, you are, you are default winning, but you need to keep that which means you are having to respond to the other player, which Mm -hmm. means that in a lot of ways you are, even though you're not on the back foot, you are the one whose duty it is to respond correctly. Yeah. Yes. Because if you respond incorrectly, that allows them to change the game state. So in that respect, being the winning player is often harder than being the losing player because it is on you to continue playing correctly. Yes. And uh, making a mistake will lose you the game. This is definitely one of those times where you want to really sit there and think before you execute your turn because making mistakes is bad. Mm -hmm. So just like, this is the plan. We're going to execute this. This is the plan. We're going to execute this. Do that every phase. Yeah. You're probably going to be fine in that regard if you just remind yourself what you're doing. Right. You, You need to stick to your guns. Don't act rashly. Yes. If you lose a unit that's really to a certain key part of the board don't overreact and go all right everything shift and kill that one unit that just killed this absolutely something i see players do far too often you really need to as shaylin and justin said like think your turn through and have a plan and execute it well because you have everything to lose yes with that said as the defensive player Typically, your plan doesn't have to be crazy complicated. It just needs to be looking at the board and saying, okay, this is how things are now. This is what my enemy is trying to do. How do I stop them from doing that? Mm -hmm. Because presumably they have some kind of plan they're trying to execute as well. Your plan is to counter their plan. No, there's never a plan. 
<laughs> well, sometimes, yes. Which can be difficult in its own way, but also easier in its own way. It's like playing poker, just don't not, but not look at the hand. You just go, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Hey, man, you say that until you get a full house with it. <laughs> Every once in a while, yes. Very much like as the defensive player, you need to be looking at, you know, what is the game state and what's causing me to win? Mm -hmm. And then look at how can I keep that as it is? That's often going to mean sacrificing units. The defensive player is often using delaying tactics or spacing to sort of position things. Tempo manipulation. Yes. Yeah. They're trying to hold things off and keep things delayed and backed up the way they are or the way they previously were for as long as possible. Because mm -hmm. the longer that goes on, the more likely you're just going to keep the board state the same and you'll most likely win at that point. Exactly. So if that means if you need to sacrifice that unit of sisters to get that objective, mm -hmm. okay, that works. You sacrifice like, what, 40 points? Yeah. But you get a point and that point's there on the board. Yes. You have that. That can mean the difference between winning a game and losing a game. IPC games are not won by large margins. Nope. And the defender really just has to get that small margin where they are just like sitting here and saying like, okay, I don't have to pull ahead of you. I just need to make sure you don't pull ahead of me. Yep. Yes. And say that like, okay, you scored two points this turn. I just need to score two points because three points three. might be a stretch, but I can do two. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Two is a lot easier to get than three in this game, typically. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is where, in some ways, the defender's job is much easier, especially if they are going second. Mm -hmm. um, a defender going second is in a very good spot because that means they can often maintain score parity and simply prevent the attacker from ever being able to edge them out in that way. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this third case that we've kind of touched on a number of times here. Namely, when roles change, <laughs> what would you say are some good indicators that players have switched roles, even if they don't recognize it? A model count. Okay, yeah. I, I'd say model count is the, by far the most obvious one. It's definitely not like a nuanced one. It's like you just come to board, one turn they have 100 models, next turn they have 20, you know? That's a pretty big indicator that something's changed. Absolutely. True. Yeah, it's just you come to board, you see it, and you're like, oh, okay. So back to the target priority episode is kind of tempo assessment is when you're saying there's like, all right, what were my big targets? How many of theirs are dead? Hmm, the, the threats to your list. Yeah, if I've removed all the threats to my list, that's fine. I'm a defender now. Yep. That is very often going to be true. Especially have I removed the threats to their list before they've dealt with the things that they needed to deal with. Yes. Yes. Some of the notes that you had on here, bad swing of dice, that is way too real. Mm -hmm. Yes. There can be turns that will, like, a couple rolls of the dice can change who is the attacker and the defender. Mm -hmm. Maybe because you blew up a key unit, like that basilisk exploding. Yeah. Maybe just because you got rid of that Castellan on turn one, or failing a charge. If you are like, okay, I have to pass this four-inch charge, and then I'm in on their whole army and locking them in combat, I'm going to try point something, they don't get to shoot me, and you fail that charge with a reroll, that may be what turns you from defender to attacker right there. Yes. And it might be back to the knights and, like, Thousand Suns example, is they send a knight in, 
the axe guy mulches it, he uses the blow-up stratagem, kills all the characters. Sure. Yep. If you do 5566 to all their psychers, and suddenly they're just looking at, well, I have a whole bunch of plague bearers, but I don't have anything else, that changes the game right there. And this is where you can say the knight player has the tools to make that turnabout. Yes. But they have to recognize what they are and what those tools can do and how they use them. Mm-hmm. And again, this is also like the the drop come in from someone's beta strike list and it sweeps a big portion of your forces off the table. You're kind of like, uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah. Well, and is that portion of your forces more or less than you were hoping slash expecting to lose? Yeah. Or even then, like, is that part of your board even important? Mm-hmm. Very true. Because sure, like, you know, if they pick up like, you know, 30 models, but those 30 models are just your, like, whatever your screen variant is of that one side of the board, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. Like, you're killing them and not the things behind them. Exactly. If they kill your screen and nothing else you are probably still the defender because they still have not accomplished what they need to do, i.e. get to the meat of your army. They have only gotten to your screens, who are, by their very nature, expendable. Yes. Models on the board and what's happening on the board can be a very good indicator, and as we say, often the most obvious indicator. But there's another one, uh, and that's scores. Yes. Mm -hmm. The player who has a better score is also often going to be the defender. Not always, but very often. If I have 32 and you have 28, well, I mean, I'm, I'm winning. Mm-hmm. Unless you do something, I'm winning. And that will naturally incline the player with the higher score to be the defender. So if you see a big swing in score, that can also be a thing. But scores don't tend to change as fast as models do. Yes, that's true. There was actually a GT I went to a while back, and it was the first game of the day. Mm-hmm. By the end of the game, I had two units of Grottons left on the board. Yep. That was it. Just two units. He had basically half his army left, but I was up by eight points. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't matter. That's all you needed. You had pulled ahead on points, and that was a thing. Yeah. Points are what wins you the game. They absolutely are. The key thing to remember with looking at points and trying to determine whether the attacker is defender is to look at... How much more of the game is left, and where are the point swings changing? If yeah. you are both getting kill and hold and filling all your secondaries every turn, then it does come down to, like, who holds more, who kills more, who gets the bonus points. Yes. yes. Uh, and that tends to be a fairly slow swing. You don't see a lot of turns where one player gets 13 and the other player gets 1. Yeah. It still can. Like, if you creep up on the other player, it's like, well, last turn I was ahead by three, and this turn I was ahead by one. Next turn, he's going to be ahead by one. Even though you might have more points right now, looks like you're the attacker because you need to change how the points totals are changing. Yeah. You are all of a sudden behind in the future, and you recognize that. Yes. The trend is not favoring you. Exactly. And there's that, that's that inevitability again. How does the game end if things continue the way they are now? Mm-hmm. And one caveat I kind of want to throw on that is don't get flustered if you recognize that. Mm-hmm. Because that can actually make you, lead you to make bad decisions. Yes. I have mentioned earlier on, the reason why I hearken on it is because I have a bad habit of doing that myself, and I hate seeing other people doing it. 
a, a lot mm-hmm. of people do get flustered because they get into that mindset of I'm behind, therefore I'm going to lose, therefore I just have to I have to try everything and get every point. And it's like, okay, calm down. You, you go for those Hail Marys when that's not needed at that point. Yeah. Right. I will point out, I'm behind a lot as the Grey Knight player. I just got used to it. Sure. But if you keep in that very rational mindset and say, okay, what can I do about this? You have to remember that just because the default state is one thing, we mentioned swings of the dice. Swings of the dice happen all the time. Oh, yeah, no, I've I've watched games where he's like, and there's like, I charge three daemonettes into your line. They kill a gray knight. Mm-hmm. That was the end of the demon player's game. Yep. And things like that will happen. You can't always necessarily count on them happening, but you shouldn't just assume that your opponent is going to roll average because dice very rarely stay average. All right, really quick. Is it just me, or whenever it is a really close game, those rolls really stand out more than any other time? Well, your brain notices them more because you're so focused on the close game, yeah. Perception is a weird, weird human principle, and we don't talk about that yet. Yes. <laughs> we'll go ahead and, and make that little like note aside, is that like... Those rolls happen constantly. All of these weird, like, people complain about, like, oh, I charged in my important unit and I rolled four ones on six dice. And, like, I can't believe I have the worst luck. It's just like, yeah, that happens all the time. You just don't notice it. Yeah. Uh, And that's something I actually make a point of is just go, okay, that's an average roll. Okay, that's a abnormal high roll okay that's an abnormal roll roll and i use that to basically remind myself like oh look it's all over the place good job me yes actually i I do the same thing but only with certain units Mm. (laughs) ones that matter the ones that matter which as a side note away from this my shock attack gun has been below average for the last three games the next turn i go to i'm expecting i'm expecting an 11 11 11 for it firing three times Uh oh that sounds like we had a gambler's fallacy over here (laughs) oh yeah I'm just ready for it to pay out big. Right? Well, sooner or later it will. I'm expecting Stern to blow himself off the table psychically. Yes. Because Stern was super bad about that last game I watched him. Yeah. So, I think that basically wraps up our, our discussion of how to determine attacker and defender. Unless either of the two of you have anything you want to add on as a nice little closer. As a thing in your practice games, just try to, like, ask yourself the question, am I attacking or defending here? In this sense, not physically attacking, but... Am I inevitably going to win or inevitably going to lose? Just something to keep track of. Kind of going off that, if you actually, in a practice game, because it's a practice game, talk with your opponent about what you plan to do and just kind of plan out your turn and you talk with them about how they would react to it. Mm -hmm. And then you just talk about the general gameplay as you're playing it, because that's how you really learn is by talking through the motions while you're doing it. Very much so. That's what practice games are for, is for you to understand how the game is likely to go. Yes. And you won't know who has inevitability unless you've played that game and you understand what your opponent is likely to do and what their basic game plan is. If you have found this subject interesting and want to talk with us some more about it, or you didn't quite grasp what we're getting at here and want a little bit better explanation, or you just want to send us a list and chat with us a little bit, you can contact us either by email, uh, we are in the finest hour at gmail.com, or you can get us on Facebook, where we are also in the finest hour. You can send us a message or post to our wall or what have you. 
you, if you would like a little bit more prolonged interaction and you want to throw a couple bucks a month our way, we have a Patreon, and for $5 every month, you can be part of our Discord as well as our private Facebook group where we talk about 40k a lot. We would also like to give a big thank you not only to our Patreons who help us keep this whole thing running, but also to our sponsors. Um, Dank Muse has provided all of the music for things. He's a very cool guy. And if you're looking for some funky-ass beats, then maybe check him out on YouTube, Spotify, or SoundCloud. We would also like to thank Rylan Woodrow, who does our fantastic art, mm-hmm. and Stephanie Jahensen, I think at Old Dog New Truck Studios, who did our t-shirts. Yes, very gorgeous. We'll be bringing those to the, the tournaments as of uh, pretty soon here. Also, we have advertising opportunities. If you'd like to drop in your tournament, your podcast, or what have you, just give us a contact at inthefinesthour at gmail.com, and we'll work something out. Yep. Justin, do you have anything you want to plug for us here? No. All right, you're good. Keep playing hard out there, people. I believe in you. You're rolling in so much dough, you don't even need it. No, seriously, I, I'm broke. I need all the dough. Seriously. Oh, that's right. You're a, you're a college graduate, so you are 100% broke. I'm sorry, my friends. We've all been there. All right. Next week, next week. Next week, our subject is going to be Math Hammer, because a lot of people just don't understand math very well. Math's fun. I like math. I think a lot of us do, yeah. It's And that puts us in the minority when we start saying math is fun. So hopefully we will be able to break that down for everyone in a way that is fun and comprehensible. Hopefully I don't have to bust out the fundamental theory of calculus again. Oh, no, we're not doing any calculus. <laughs> so, for In the Finest Hour, I've been Sean Morgan. Shailen Allen. This guy. <laughs> this guy. Thanks for listening. Wow.